yeah, being on the team with uh, Kevin and Justine has been super awesome because they've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So it's been cool to be able to learn from them. Um, and yeah, it's just a, they're a fun group to talk to. Uh, we started meeting back in, I guess, September uh, to talk about what it, you know, how things were going to go uh, while Kurt and Julie were on sabbatical and you know, kind of centered in on doing this series about the names of God and, and getting to know him through those names. And, you know, we were looking at the different names people were going to do. And, you know, we talked about shepherd and provider and uh, all the different names. And we decided, okay, one of the ones I'm going to take is the Lord is my banner. And instantly, Kevin and Justine started making the Hulk jokes. <laughs> okay, like the third if you got that. So the Hulk is this superhero character in the Avengers. And I'm sure there's this whole comic book history to it that I don't know because I... I don't know, I just haven't even seen that stuff. But uh, he's this big green guy who becomes super strong and can basically take on anybody, you know, bullets bounce off of him, that sort of thing. But he's just an ordinary guy, and his name is Bruce Banner. So the Lord is my banner, Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk. So that's, that's sort of the joke. And th- this has been going on for like six months now. So like this is, this is an email that, I, that Kevin sent, uh, if I'm on. Yeah, this is an email Kevin sent to me and Justine. It says, this is Robert every time we talk about his sermon. And that's, that's Bruce Banner starting to turn into the Hulk. You can see he's starting to turn green there. And then this past week, I was scheduling the preach call with Kurt and Justine. And I texted Justine to see, you know, does Wednesday morning work for you? And she responded, Hulk says yes. <laughs> but they've been making these jokes for like six months. And they were like, no, you should, like, you should talk about it. Like, that'd be a great, like, really memorable sermon illustration. And I'm like, no, like, we're going to talk about God's word. Like, this is, this is what, like, this is something serious, right? This is, this is something that matters. And the more I thought about it, as much as I hate to admit it, they were right. So just bear with me for a second. I think there are times in our lives where we are like the Hulk, right? We are strong and going for it. We are gung-ho for God. We are willing to go for it, whatever the cost is. Uh, Pain doesn't matter. Suffering doesn't matter. I'm going all the way until the battle is won, right? And then there are other times where we're not like that. We're just more like Bruce Banner. You know, we are a regular person, kind of anxious, kind of sheepish, uh, not bold. You know, we're just kind of hanging in there surviving, right? Isn't that sort of what our spiritual lives are like sometimes? God says this to the people of Judah and Jeremiah. He says, how unstable you are, constantly changing your ways. And I feel like that's me a lot of the time. A lot of the time I am indifferent or apathetic. I just don't care that much about the things of God. You know, I have all these things going on in my life, all these people demanding my attention, all these things that I need to do. And it's a lot. And I just, sometimes I just don't want to think about it, right? When I was uh, younger, when I was in middle school and high school, I was really into uh, ancient military history. Uh, I loved looking at like the battles that the, the ancient Greeks fought with the Persians, you know, Thermopylae and Marathon and Salamis and, you know, the people coming together to defend their home against these invaders or like the Romans versus the Carthaginians and Hannibal taking the elephants over the Alps and fighting the Romans in Rome and all of that. It was just the coolest thing to me. There's sort of something romantic about it to a middle school boy, right? And I just, I just, it's still kind of romantic to me. Um, I love the strategy of it, but also just like the picture of like an army, right? Together marching forward to fight for something. There's something kind of epic and majestic about that. And uh, when you are a soldier on the battlefield in that kind of 
scenario. You're up in the front lines. There's, there's no space between you and the enemy army. You're right there. You know, you and all of your guys are on one side and them and all of their guys on their side and you're fighting and it's chaos and confusion and noise. And when you're there in that moment, you can't really see what's going on around you, can you? You can't see what's happening. You don't know where to be, where to go, unless there's something kind of like above eye level that you can look to, right? There has to be something above the noise and the confusion of what you're in. And in the ancient military battles, that thing was the banner. The Romans did this better than anybody. They understood the importance of this. They were more disciplined and more organized than anybody. They had their armies organized into legions of 5,500 men, split into 10 cohorts of six centuries each. A century means 100, but there's actually about 80 guys in a century. There'd be the centurion who's in charge. He's following the commands of the general of the legion. And if I'm a soldier, I'm following the centurion, right? And the centurion, because, you know, he's just a soldier like everybody else, he's got a special hat, but if I can't see the hat, you know, how do I know where he is? There is a man next to him named the signifer. And the signifer is the banner holder, the military standard bearer of the century, of the legion, of Rome. And in Rome, the banner would have looked something like this. This would have been the military standard that they would have carried. This is the military standard of the first uh, German legion of Rome, one of the real legions that went and fought, and that's what he's carrying. It's kind of epic, right? It's kind of majestic. There's something royal about it, something regal about it, something that kind of makes me stand up a little straighter and say, yeah, that's what I'm fighting for. That's what I'm defending, right? I want to see God that way. I want my life with God to be like that. I don't want to be apathetic and indifferent. I want to see him as majestic and kingly and royal and good and true and beautiful and all the things that are worth knowing and all the things that are worth defending, all the things that are worth bringing to others, right? All the good things. But a lot of the time, we don't see him that way. We don't see him as majestic and powerful and regal and someone that I should worship and follow. Instead, we end up building our own little banners that are more like this. That one's a little better, don't you think? I'd rather have that one. I don't want to see God this way. I don't want my life with God to look like this. But it does a lot of the time, doesn't it? A lot of the time, this is how I see him. Or I'm building up my own little banners, the own little, my own little things that I think are important, that I think others need to know about, that you know, if they just knew about this, it would change their life completely. It's kind of dinky looking, right? This is, to say that this is what you need when you can have that is just utterly ridiculous, right? I want to see God as that every single day. I want to look at him and be able to say of him what the chorus says of the bride in Song of Solomon. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners, right? That's how I want to see him. Because we are in a fight. Just like the Roman soldiers in the front, we are in a fight. We're not in a physical fight, it's a spiritual one. It's a fight to know him, both for ourselves every day, to be able to see him as that instead of as that, 
and also for others to know him, right? To bring him to the world. God, or Paul says that we have to fight the good fight of the faith. We have to take hold of the eternal life to which we were called. We can't just let it happen because if we just go on our course, if we, if we don't speak uh, you know, prophetic words, for example, that's where you end up. That's the natural result. I want to be over here instead. So uh, we got Kirk Jackson praying for the sermon, member of my trifold, as we call it, or our triceratops, our triforce. We came up with a lot of good names. Oh, yeah. Awesome group. So, Kirk, would you pray for the sermon and lift up another church too, please? Sure. Happy to do it. Uh, Lord, Jesus, thank you for bringing us all together today as a congregation, as a body. And, Lord, I just ask that you know, through these encouraging words, through these words that you bring to us in Robert's sermon, Lord, and the illustrations and just the heart you've given him and everything that comes to him, Lord, that you would you'd build us up. You build us up as a as a body, and I'm just praying that you know your wisdom would come to us and the encouragement that you want to bring to us. You know when there's so much else in the world, Lord. Thank you, thank you for that. And Lord, I want to um, bring to you the Beijing International Christian Fellowship and that community over there. And I ask that even though you know just in the large, um, you know scale of the church, that you encourage those tight-knit groups and relationships, just the same as you do in the smaller churches and our church at Lake Sam as well. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Kirk. So, the story we're looking at today, for the Lord is my banner, is from Exodus 17. We're going to hop back there. A lot of the names that we've been looking at are in Exodus. And we're not that far into their journey to the promised land. They've come out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. God has rescued them from the Egyptian army. And three things have happened so far. They have had God turn bitter water to sweet. They've had him bring manna from heaven. And they've had him bring water from a rock. So they've had some experiences with God. They've had some moments of testing, of trial, of getting to know him a little bit better. But it still hasn't been that long. They've been out there for weeks, maybe months, probably not a year at this point, right? And the next thing that happens is they get attacked by the Amalekites. We read in Exodus 17, while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired, he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. Now there's a lot in here that we're gonna look at. But the first thing that I noticed when I was reading this passage was this is different than the first battle that they fought. 
When they come out of Egypt, the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, attacks them. And what does God say to them? Moses says to the people as God's voice, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. This is their first experience of God. It's, it's like a salvation experience for us. And that's sort of what we experience when God first, when you first come to know him, right? Seems like he just fights the entire battle for you. You don't have to do a single thing. You don't have to lift a finger. You don't have to raise a sword. He does it all. Sin just gets obliterated. It just seems like he's just working miracles left and right. And you're just like, wow, this is incredible. I want to know this God. That's fantastic. But that's not what happened. Is, that's not what is happening here, right? They're getting attacked. And Moses says to Joshua, choose men. Go out and fight the battle. He has to pick some guys, arm them. They never, I don't even know if they have any weapons, right? They're just a group of people wandering out of Egypt for the first time. They, they were never a nation before this. They were just a family that happened to be together and grew to be two million people. And they've got to go arm themselves and go fight a battle now for the first time. They've never had to do this before. I think sometimes in our lives, we go through trouble and hardship. We, we come out of that salvation moment and it seems like God stops working miracles left and right. It seems like things aren't going quite so well as they were at first. And I wonder, am I doing something wrong? Am I starting to get it wrong? Like God was doing great things before and it seems like he's not anymore. So maybe I'm the problem. Maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe something's wrong with the way that I'm approaching things. Is he punishing me for something? Why is there a battle happening? Why do I have to fight? Like I thought God was gonna do all of this. We don't see God saying anything like that here. We don't see him saying, see him saying that you know, they have done something wrong and they're gonna be punished now. He says that a lot in the Old Testament. He allows them to experience the consequences of their actions because he wants them to know when you're with me, that's when things are really good. I have life for you, not these other idols or these other gods, these other choices that you can make. But he's not saying that here. God doesn't say anything. They just get attacked and they have to go fight a battle. I think God is trying to raise us up to maturity. I think he's trying to get us to grow up a little bit. He's giving us a chance to learn from him and to grow up and to fight the battle. And in this case, I don't think it's Israel's fault that they're getting attacked. It's not a consequence of God, something that God did. In fact, it's the other way around. The reason they're getting attacked is because the people who are attacking them are evil. In Deuteronomy, God explains a little bit more about what's happening here. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So we don't see this detail in Exodus, but apparently what the Amalekites did, right? So, you know, Israel's walking along. They've got a caravan of people, two million people, and Amalek attacks them in the rear where the slowest people are, probably the oldest people or the children or whatever it is. And he attacks the rear and separates them from the rest of the caravan and attacks them. So Amalek is not picking on someone his own size. Amalek is a bully. In fact, it says Amalek does not fear God, which is actually not surprising when you consider who Amalek is. If you look in Genesis, you see that Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Esau is the oldest grandson of Abraham, the oldest son of Isaac. He's born before Jacob. He should be the one 
that God is bringing all his promises through, right? God made all these promises to Abraham and Isaac saying, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna bless you or bless all the nations of the earth through you. That should be Esau. But instead, this is what happens. When Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He couldn't have waited like half an hour more and cooked his own food. He did not care about the promises of God. Jacob had all his own issues too, but Jacob at least wanted to be God's man. He at least wanted the chance to have God's promises come through him. He at least wanted to be blessed by God. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, right? That's Jacob. But Esau despises it. And it's not always true that children walk in the way of their parents, but that's kind of the default, right? In kings, when they're talking about the, you know, the kings and the sons who succeed them, whether the king was good or bad, it always says of the son, he either walked in the way of his father or he turned away. The default is to walk in the way. Otherwise, you have to turn, whether your father was good or bad, and both, both things happened. But it seems Amalek probably did not turn from the ways of his father and his grandfather because he does not fear God, and he is attacking these weak, defenseless caravans for whatever reason, plundering, who knows. So that's who they're fighting against. And it says in Exodus, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. Do you have something in your life that raises its fist against God? That doesn't fear him? That doesn't see him as that? It says, no, that's God's banner. That's what God looks like. That's how it sees him. It calls good evil and evil good. Do you have something like that? In the last year, it sort of crept on me really slowly and at the same time suddenly because you, you just all of a sudden wake up in one day and realize it's there. But I work in uh, tax for investment companies and we see all these different investments that are being made, a lot of money changing hands and a lot of money going back and being made by these investors. And that's what my coworkers end up talking about a lot of the time because it's just what we work on, right? And about four years ago, I started doing a little bit of investing on my own. And at first, I lost just as much as I made, right? Because you're learning it and figuring it out and making mistakes. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I started to figure it out, I think, and I started to do well. I started to do really well, actually. And before I knew it, the first thing I would, I would check when I woke up in the morning was my brokerage account. And I would go and look and see, oh, what happened after the market opened? Oh, this, this company issued a new SEC filing. I've got to look at that and see what's going on there. Oh, there's this new thing in the news. It's affecting all the stocks that I own. I have to figure out what's going on there and, and make sure I know. And that was consuming my thoughts. It was taking over the way that I thought. And what should have been a blessing from God to me, something that I could use to serve him in his kingdom and say, God, what do you want to do with this money that you blessed me with? How do you want me to give that back to you, whether it's tithing or investing to make more to tithe? Like, I don't know what it is, you know? Just show me what it is. I wasn't doing that. It was about me. It was about my own security and my own needs, and I want to be safe and independent, and that was my priority. And this can happen whether you have money or whether you don't, right? 
I, I have a friend, a dear friend, who was a missionary kid, and uh, his parents never had any money. They had zero money all the time because of what they were doing, and fundraising was hard and all of that. And they were frugal because they had to be, but he sort of grew up always feeling guilt about spending money, right? Always feeling like any time that he spent something he didn't actually exactly have to spend, right? Five bucks on a Starbucks to meet with somebody, right? He would feel guilty. He would berate himself for that. Thinking like, well, I'm just, I'm so terrible. Why am I wasting this money? I shouldn't be doing this. Something is wrong with me. And he was just worrying all the time, checking and rechecking his budget. And he's gotten a lot better. He's been able to grow in faith in God as his provider, able to see him as the one who can take care of him in, in every circumstance, right? Rather, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, that can become something that raises its fist against God. It can be something that says of God, I don't need you, I can figure it out on my own. And that's why Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God in money. And there are plenty of other masters that we can look to. There are plenty of other banners that we can run to, right? What is it for you? What is the thing in your life that stands up against God and prevents you from seeing him as that? The little tiny banner that you raise up and say, this is the thing that's going to protect me. This is the thing that's going to make me whole. It can't. And it won't. Let God work in you. Let him speak to you about what that is, if there's something for you. And when that's done, the next challenge we face, uh, I think maybe I went twice. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. God is going to destroy that. He's going to wipe it out. That's going to be the end of it, right? It's all it's going to be. It's, it's all going to be destroyed in the end. He's going to take every sin, everything that stands up against him, and remove it. Not because he's too proud, or because he can't stand to have something threaten him. It's because he wants us to know him. C.S. Lewis says we must not think that pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it, or that humility is something he demands is due to his own dignity, as if God himself were proud. He's not in the least worried about his dignity. The point is, he wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. He wants you to be able to see him as the true banner. That banner stands in the way of that. And when that's done, the next challenge is being able to find him when we're faint and weary. They got attacked when they were on this journey. Maybe this is one of the times where they're looking for water and they haven't been given water by God yet. I don't know. For some reason, they are tired. They are weary on this journey. And they're getting attacked right in the middle of that, right? And I think often our spiritual indifference or our spiritual apathy, our inability to see God as the true banner, comes from just that faintness and tiredness and weariness, right? We have so many things to do, so many obligations we have to meet. I'm in, starting to be in tax season right now. So right now I'm working about 55 hours a week and it's going to ramp up to about 75 I'm doing a master's class at USC online in tax. Uh, I just started dating a girl in California. She's pretty great. I'm really thankful for her. But that means I'm down there about one weekend a month and spending time on the phone talking to her most days, which is great. It takes time. And 
God has been getting pushed out, right? His place becomes suddenly less important. I wake up in the morning and I think, I could sleep an extra 45 minutes and not do my devotional today. That'd be fine, right? I, I had a late night last night, right? I, I need to get some extra sleep and caught up because if I don't, this whole rest of this week is going to be difficult. And so I let that go. Uh, maybe I have a meeting with my threefold, with Kirk and Jeff, and I say, uh, you know, I'm just really slammed. I don't, think I, I don't think I can meet this week. I'm sorry, guys. Can't do it. Just have too much to do. Or uh, it's Sunday morning, and, you know, let's say that I am healthy and I have nothing that keeps me from being able to come to church on a Sunday morning. No health issues, no transportation issues. I can be here. I don't have to stream the service. But I say, it's fine. I'm just going to sleep in for a while and, and watch church from home. It'll be fine. I don't need to be part of the actual community there. I'll, I'll get the sermon. I'll get the truth. That'll be great. These are not good options for us. When we do that, God goes from looking like that to like that. Bonhoeffer says, come to church. You can do that of your own free will. You can leave your home on a Sunday morning and come to hear the sermon. If you will not, you're of your own free will, excluding yourself from the place where faith is a possibility. Do not say that you have not got faith. You will not have it so long as you refuse to take the first step. There are times where I'm not willing to take that step. I think, it's fine for today. It's going to be fine. I don't need to do it today. It's all right. And slowly, bit by bit, he shrinks in my perception. He shrinks in my sight. His glory becomes minuscule, right? We have to take those steps. I need to meet with my threefold. I need Kirk and Jeff holding up my hands in the battle. Because if we don't pray for God to win, we're going to lose. That's, that's the other option. Whenever Moses lowered his hands, the, Amalek, the Amalekites prevailed, right? Whenever he raised them, Israel prevailed. I need to lift up Kirk and Jeff's hands, and they need to lift up my hands. If, that, if this story is not a biblical advertisement to be in a threefold, I don't know what is. <laughs> right? Three guys holding up their hands in prayer for God to win the battle. We need that. We need threefolds. We need church. Faith comes by hearing. Come and hear the sermon every week if you can. Pre, uh, worship together with the corporate body. My faith was built just worshiping together this morning, wasn't it? We, God was glorified in this place this morning. I wouldn't have got that at home. Even watching worship from home, I would have missed out on that to be there in the room when that is happening. That's important. And when we're tired and weary and we have a million things to do, a million obligations to me. I'm sure all, all the parents are rolling their eyes at me right now and saying, you may have a lot to do, but you don't have kids. I, I get it. I, I don't know what that's like. But when we're tired and weary, the banner of God is a place for us to flee. When we're getting attacked, we can flee to it from the arrows of the enemy, that our, his beloved ones may be delivered, that he can give salvation by his right hand and answer us. That's what the banner is. The banner is a place of unity. The banner is a place of his people coming together to rest and to defend themselves, to defend each other from the enemy, right? This is the place that unites us. I want to stand over here and encourage you to stand over here with me. 
I want to end today by sharing a, a picture with you that uh, God gave me uh, about seven years ago now. It wasn't a vision or anything. It was just sort of a, I don't know, a download moment, if you will. God gave me a picture of his glory and his majesty and his love for us. Um, and it's really shaped the way that I see him and helps me to see him better. And so I want to share it with you. And it is the kind of thing where you have to close your eyes and be in it. Um, and if that's something that you, you don't love, I, just, I really encourage you to do that today. Um, I think it's going to make a difference. So would you just close your eyes and listen as I read these words? In the middle of a city stands a large stone chapel. It's enormous. Houses and shops surround it for miles, but they all seem to cower under its towers and battlements. Picture the inside of the main hall. It's grand and ornate, with velvet tapestries lining the walls, thick suits of armor standing tall against them. Light floods in from windows high above. At the very back of the hall is an ivory throne on a platform. It's encrusted with gold, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds. The rest of the hall contains no furnishings, but it's not empty. There are two long lines of soldiers down the center aisle. They wear shining plate armor and carry drawn swords and broad tower shields, standing at attention. Behind them are thousands of people, citizens of the city and even more travelers from abroad. You are one of these people. You're standing in the middle of the crowd, everyone pushing and shoving, trying to get to a spot where they can see the center aisle. You hear a single trumpet blast, and all eyes turn toward the massive double door. Three guards pull each side open slowly. The door creaks under its great weight. And then, he is walking in. He stands taller than anyone else in the room. Like the guards, he's wearing plate armor from his toes to his neck, but his is far more elaborate. It's lined with gold. He has on a crimson red cape that flows from his back. At his side is a sword, and you wonder that it doesn't burn through its sheath, for it glows a molten red. And upon his head is a diamond crown. He begins to walk slowly up the aisle, looking from side to side into the crowds. With every step, the ground seems to shake. Every few seconds, he would seem to hesitate for a moment, as if he were looking for someone. As he gets closer, you can see his face better. His hair is dark and curly, but not long. His beard is full on his strong but gentle face. And his eyes? His eyes are full of fire. As he gets closer, your heart beats faster. You're hoping that he might cast a glance in your direction, but at the same time, you wish he would stop coming closer. His eyes are terrible and wonderful. He's only a few yards away now, and he stops. He looks right at you. You try to hold his gaze, but you can't, and you look down. Your heart is racing now. Just keep going, just keep walking. You say to him under your breath, but he doesn't. He starts to move toward you, out of the aisle. He waves aside the guards and the people in front of you, and he stops. You can see the toes of his boots and the edge of his cape as you, as you stare at the ground. My friend, he says, as he lifts up your head. You see his face again, and he's smiling. He begins to laugh, a deep, sincere, genuine laugh of joy and gladness. He embraces you. Welcome, he says. I'm so glad you're here. You can open your eyes.
That's Jesus. That is my king, my captain, my friend. The one that I would follow even to death because he gave his life for me. His is the banner that I hold. His is the banner that I look to. His is the banner that I run to when I'm weak and weary, when enemies are coming against me. Hold up the banner. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Wherever you are this morning, whether you've got something in your life that's raising its fist against God, that's trying to take his place, or whether you're just tired and not able to get there on your own, take that first step. Run to the banner. And if you need help, ask for help. Get in a threefold if you're not in one. And if you are in one, talk to your threefold and say, I need you to hold up my hands because I can't do it anymore on my own. And the battle is going to be won. One day, God is going to obliterate the enemy. That other banner is going to be struck down for good, right? All will be made right. So Lord, we just thank you for your goodness, for your power, that you are a banner that we can look to. You are a king who is glorious and beautiful and majestic and good and true and loving. I pray that you would glorify yourself in our eyes, God. Help us to see you as the true banner. The Lord is my banner. Yahweh is my banner. He is the one that I run to, the one that I cling to. We thank you, Lord. Pray that you would do all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.